So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Food was great, but basic resources, uh, there's no raw materials, everything has to be shipped in, so you need a lot of creativity. Secondly, and again, it's part of the IDF especially someone uh, who comes from from special forces background, uh, I I come from that as well, that you are taught to believe in yourself and that hardship is in the head. I mean, nothing is not achievable if you put your mind to it. So you won't sleep a day and you won't sleep a night and you won't sleep a week and you'll push against the barrier. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Ohad Harlev. Ohad, tell us about Lightloop. Well, first of all, just thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is a true pleasure and honor. We at Lightloop, we are planning on storing data on light in space. In a sentence, that's all we are. We we really are at it for the last five and a half years, and we really have the science, photonics, and we think we're on to something very, very big, and that's literally a brand new way of how we, as humanity, manipulate, store, secure our data. I love it. You know, I am... Um... One of my favorite episodes out of almost 600 episodes now was uh, Steve Blank, the Stanford professor. And, uh, and so I, you know, I've, I try to read as much as I can of what he puts out there. And he had written a piece for Space News, and I wasn't even aware of that publication. So as I was going through it, I found out about you guys, and I was like, man, this is genuine innovation. This isn't like somebody's going to try something, you know, like... I feel like the word is so overused these days that it almost doesn't mean anything where this is like, Hey, we're not going to, we're not going to store data physically on the ground anymore. We're going to have lasers beam it back and forth to satellites and we can store like insane amounts of it doing it that way. To me, I was like, okay, this is genuinely new. We got to find out what these guys are doing. So. Absolutely. And, and and when we started this, you know, five years ago, it was all about the fact that humanity is today literally all about data. Every single thing that we do, every technology trend that we do, it doesn't matter if it's on the private life, if it's streaming, autonomous cars, commercial life, it's industry 4.0 or, or streaming walls or CRM systems or cloud or edge. At the end of the day, it's all data. However, the way that we're actually storing data is exactly the same way that we did in the 60s and in the 70s. We really wanted to find a solution to the biggest problems, which is how do we share data effectively? How do we share data securely? How do we secure our own data? And how do we keep it private? And if on, on the base, you know, as a side effect, we could also really make it a cleaner and more greener solution that won't uh, take so much of our planet's resources, that's an awesome side effect. And that's how we, we 
we started to work on this. And that was a long time ago, it turns out. Yeah. So, and, and did I see in the news, you guys did a successful raise last month that you closed? Absolutely. We just closed last month a raise of uh, $40 million. It wasn't our first raise. It was the first one we, we made public. And between that raise and the previous rounds, we we're able to, first of all, more than quadruple our team. But more importantly, we are going to build a six-satellite proof of concept that will be launched in three years' time that will show that not only that we can do it in a lab, which we have, but we can actually do it in space. And that's the purpose of that round. Wow. Congratulations on that. Thank you. And So who's going to launch your satellites or how will that work? So we decided like we did with the basic research, we're going to walk, we're going to do uh, basic on crawl, walk, run. So the first thing we did was we finished over the last few weeks, the sizing exercise. We know what we want to launch. We know where we want to launch it and we know what it will produce. Now we're going to start with the components of putting things together with satellite manufacturers and others that we're already in touch. Then we will add the launches on. So that hasn't been uh, finalized yet, but we do have you know quite a bit of time till we do that. And then we'll do all the other elements. So we're slightly bit in advance for that question, but we'll get there probably in about six months. Very cool. So let's back up just for a little bit for people who haven't had the chance to read the stuff that I've read and everything. Can you Can you slow this down just for folks a little bit? Instead of putting stuff in a data center, exactly what you're going to do with the data instead? Absolutely. So let's take a really simple example of two satellites in space. It doesn't matter if they're in low Earth orbit, in regular geostationary satellite, just two satellites floating around in space. And what we're planning on doing is having data, having photons or laser beams just go from satellite A to satellite B, back to A, back to B. Having your data go back and forth and back and forth, each time it, re- it reaches a satellite, that is, of course, an option to read or write the data so you can retrieve your data whenever you need. And that's a data center now. Instead of doing it with two satellites, we're actually going to do it with many, many, many small satellites. So 100, 200, maybe even 300 satellites. And by adding all these satellites, we're adding huge amounts of capacity. So we can store exabyte range of capacity. For those of you who are not familiar with exabyte, as I wasn't familiar not, until not too long ago, that is we can build bigger than the largest commercial data centers just in space. Wow. And, and what we find super cool, and I think you know, someone who comes from the space industry like mine, I think the biggest constraint in the space environment is gravity. It's just very expensive to put things in space. But our storage medium is photons, which are massless. They don't have any mass. So we're sending up data centers without, quote unquote, data centers. So, and can you explain this, this idea of, again, for for, pe- for non-technical folks um, like me, this idea of of how specifically data is transformed into essentially laser beams shooting it back and forth. Absolutely. So the basic of every single communication, it doesn't matter if it's a cellular signal, if it's Wi-Fi, RF, laser, is you've got a conduit, a pipe, and then you need to add zeros and ones to the pipe. Different 
waveforms, different signals, have the capability to store, to, to see zeros and ones faster. So lasers can see a lot of zeros and ones every second. RF can do less. Wi-Fi can do less. Bluetooth can do less, etc. So if you've got a laser beam, you can add your data in. And that means you literally are just telling the, the lasers to go on, off, on, off, but really, really, really fast, billions of billions of times per second. And that is how you convey data on light. What we're doing is, is that every single communication system in the world is built on the fact that you want to move a message from point A to point B. And you want to do it as fast as you can. It doesn't matter which communication system, the most efficient and fast. We just flipped it over and said, we want to move the message from point A to point B as slow and the longest path possible. And when we get to B, let's find the longest path possible to C. And then the longest path possible, et cetera, et cetera, until we close the loop. And the point is so that you can have more in the air going between them. Or exactly. Not, the or in this case, there, not air. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, exactly in the yeah. in the vacuum. Well, since we are a cloud of we are a cloud above the cloud, so we've got to be very puns. We have we've got endless <laughs> amounts of puns. <laughs> so for when you think about lessons of of what you've been doing through these last few years and getting to this level of success already, what what's a lesson for other entrepreneurs listening, based on what you feel like you've been through here? So the first thing I would say to someone else would be get the right team. It's all about the people that work with you. It's all about finding the best experts in what they what in their field. But then really in my mind have a complete open discussions between different disciplines. So we found that our biggest breakthroughs and our biggest ability to move forward was actually having a computer programmer sit in a photonics meeting, give his, his, his expertise from his point of view. It doesn't matter that the other guys are 40 years after their PhDs and their world-renowned names, and he has no idea in photonics. He's able sometimes, or he's a generic name, but anybody can give that spark, that movement forward, and a joint team of brilliant people from different disciplines can really move the ball a lot faster than one person who is okay. So it's why, why do you think we so naturally group together like, hey, put the salespeople together, put the accounting people together, put the design people together, put the programmer, the developers together? Why do you think we so naturally do that even though there's such good data about cross-functional teams and not having silos? First of all, I think the natural thing that everybody wants to be is you group people together. That's all we do all day long. We just group things together. We put, we group M&Ms based on color and we group, we, you know, salespeople together. It's a natural thing to do. And I really think that it's wrong. So we do, and if we can, start with the really simple things of making sure that two, that if you got to share a room, you share a room with someone who does something else. That really moves along. And yes, we do talk about the fact that people understand that diverse groups or multidisciplinary groups work really well, but it's also a lot harder because on the face of it, when you look at it, how much time is lost in translation? Because these guys not always talk in the same language. What I've noticed and I've noticed in, in the past many, many times is yes, you do lose a certain amount of substantial percentage time in 
people not understanding each other and learning each other's language. But once that is overcome, then the output is so much bigger than what you've quote unquote lost that it's super worth it. Yeah, there because there is a natural friction when you put different personalities together, different disciplines together, you know, because we all sort the world differently. And it's like, if you can overcome that friction, such as, you know, this team doesn't know what the, you know, these folks don't know what that acronym is or right. Mm -hmm. Simple things like that. Go ahead. What were you going to say? So I've had the real privilege of the first cup, you know, dozen or so employees that we had were all PhDs in photonics. And I used to ask them, are you a physicist or a scientist or are you an engineer? Mm. And it turns out that most people have a very, they could have studied the same thing. They could have done the same career path, but they have a very strong feeling of what they are. And when I spoke with these gentlemen later on, when they joined the team and we became a bit closer and I said, did it, why are you so adamant that you're an engineer or a scientist respectively? And they kept on saying, well, you know, I worked so hard. I'm a scientist. I'm not an engineer. I can't, that's not right. I'm, and I said, but this guy worked exactly the same as you. He's got the same PhD from the same school. And he refers to himself as an engineer. Did he work less? No, but I don't care about him. I care about how I feel about myself. And sometimes if people, it's, a, it's a, like anything in life. It's a matter of, sometimes it's ego. We were very lucky to be able to find people who don't have that ego. And they really care about tackling the toughest challenges and making things work. So I think that grouping also avoids on the one hand, it avoids ego fights, which we were very lucky that we don't have. But also, it does create a certain well-known balance and hierarchy. So if you've got salespeople and they're all in the same group, as you said, then it's clear that the guy who's been there for 30 years is probably better at it, probably, than the guy who's been there for a year. Probably. Same thing with scientists. That's even clearer. But if you've got a scientist that's there for 10 years and a sales guy for 10 years, who's more senior? If they're working in the same team. So I think that may be another reason why people are grouping teams of the same discipline. And I don't believe that. We personally don't think that's the way to, to do that. You know, one of the things I've talked about a number of times on this show is how early in my career, you know, I hear people say stuff like hire people better than yourself, blah, blah, blah. And I, I just had never experienced it. And if I'm honest, my my mindset was so much of like, what's the least expensive employee who can get the job done? That really was the mindset. You know, and I, I remember the first time I hired somebody who was legitimately superior to me at, at something that I was largely in charge of doing. And mm -hmm. it was this it was just wildly eye opening, you know, and and it's like we were paying like 300 grand a year. That was like triple what I what I was paying my other top employee. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, but he was like the work that he got done. 10 of my $100,000 employees couldn't have done that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think he was worth at Absolutely. least 10x what they were doing, but we were paying him 3x. So in the end, he ended up being more cost-effective than them, right? When you look at dollars per output instead Absolutely. of just dollars in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. uh, so my question for you is, when you, think about, when you think about attracting talent of that level, like it's one thing for us to want them, but they have to want us as well. What yeah. do you feel like are the principles that have helped you you know, get these type of PhDs to want to come over? So I think the first thing that most people 
today, especially, you know, scientists and engineers are looking for, are, they're looking for challenges, real challenges to, to, to handle. And those challenges have to be unique. In today's world of fast satisfaction, just solving another problem that's a regular pro- problem may be not good enough. But a lot, lot of people can say, oh, if you come and work with Lightloop, then you can work on space. Okay, that's already a challenge. Space is already cool. You can work on lasers in space. Okay, that's even cooler. And you can work on data storage on lasers in space. And people say, well, you can't do that. And they said, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so first of all, getting the right challenges, but also creating the challenges. Secondly, it's about transparency and truth. You've got to tell the people as it is, i.e. what I found out was people who when you know, try to sugarcoat, yes, we've got a couple of challenges, but we can make it work. They, don't, they, they can see through your, your white lies and through your cleaning up things. Tell it as it is. We were very lucky so far. We haven't had even one employee leave, but we're very lucky with the fact that we give it as is. And people do have the sniff test of, is this true? And last, especially to the scientists, it's a bit about name dropping. The one second that you get the first good guy and a second good guy, and we've got a couple of names that are worth that are very well known in the industry. And I can share with you that I actually I had an employee who started yesterday. He's a PhD. He finished his PhD and he started yesterday. And uh, we went over the team and I showed him the org chart and he saw a name on the org chart and he said, "This guy's working with you." And I said, "Oh yeah, for four years now he's part of he's in charge of of the telecom system." Wait, wait, is that the same guy that? Oh, yeah, from, yes. Why didn't say so? I would have signed a lot earlier. So um, <laughs> it's, in this industry, there are certain people who are superstars. And if you give the opportunity to work with a superstar, a lot of these guys would love to work with them. It is interesting, as you say, that I think about, you know, you know, I had a couple of big successes and, and you know, over a dozen kind of catastrophes in startups, right? And mm-hmm. I do think about what you're saying. And, and to me, what it sounds like is this idea of like, what are your magnets? What are the magnets that are going to attract these people here? Are we working on a cool problem? Is it actually a challenging problem? Are there other cool people to work with? Is this, you know, like we all, we all want group acceptability. You know, the people whose opinions we think are important, we would love for them to think well of us. And that obviously can get really out of control and people can overindulge in that. But, you know, Find me a single person on earth who doesn't want their friends to like them back. It, that doesn't exist. You know what I mean? Right? Yeah, exactly that. It's exactly that. And I would even say it's, it's slightly bit maybe we're all kids at heart at the end of the day, especially sure. me. And who wouldn't be able to love to come to his parents or to his grandparents and say, oh, by the way, what are you working on? And you say, I'm working in space. Okay. I understand space. Space is cool. What are you doing in space? Lasers. They probably use you at that point. But if you have a story that is super cool that your parents or your grandparents get it and they understand that it's cool, then that's something that fills you with pride. Yeah, are you kidding? I'm I'm 40 years old. I still call my mom and tell her about like this super fancy client we just landed. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yes. It's so dumb. I love doing it still. (laughs) I want my mom to be proud of me, right? So I want to switch gears just a little bit. The business model here. Crazy idea, great idea. Make some progress. There's a lot of there's a lot of really great innovative ideas out there, and not everybody is able to create a profitable business model around it. Tell me what tell me what you anticipate that looking like for you guys, or what 
what the the roadmap there is. Fair enough. So we we have the privilege of working with a huge market because data storage is so huge because of what we are as humanity. And it's also growing at a really, really substantial rate. However, when you really map out the market today, it doesn't matter if you're one of the huge mega mega cloud constellations, i.e. you know, Amazon's, Google, Microsoft, smaller players, medium players, it doesn't matter. When you check at the end of the day, they will give you a very, very similar offering. You can say, I want to pay a lot more and get much better security because everybody has the same level of security. You can't add on extra security. It is what it is. The benefit of Lightloop is that because we're in space and because we're in between satellites and because we're moving it well, we're using photons, we have a lot of benefits that others can't recreate. If it's four extra layers of cybersecurity, which are on the physics side, which cannot be recreated in traditional data centers and everything that can be done here, we can do in space, but they can't, the other way around won't work. We can literally create access, global access in tens of milliseconds to one file, which people can't because of issues, terrestrial issues or speed of light just works faster. We can't change the fact that light is faster. And privacy issues, which people, which is which law applies to your data, that is another benefit. Those values, we believe that people, companies, huge corporations are willing to pay a lot. We've also done our market research and we've got a understanding of what can be charged here. And the good thing with this market is we don't need a lot of the market. Our business plan is built literally on getting less than 1% of the world's market. But 1% of this huge market, which was over $100 billion last year, growing at 12.5%, is very, very big. So we're not going for a, a price play. We're not going with a lot of other plays. We're going with something very simple. We can offer three amazing values, propositions, that no one on earth can, plus an extra six or seven, which are very unique. Now, based on current feedback we have, we believe that the market is out there, both from customers, government, and possible partners. We really believe that the market is out there. So, you know, I my, my listeners know this about me because I seem to bring it up a lot. I got my first sales job 25 years ago as a 15-year-old kid. feel like I've been a salesman my whole life, even as, you know, chairman of this real estate fund we're ramping up right now, right? Still just top salesman. And 10 years ago, mm-hmm. I thought, man, if I got better at marketing, I wouldn't have to sell so much, right? So, uh, so you know, I've been a total closet marketing nerd, reading so many books, taking courses, having world-class marketing experts on the show, you know, CMOs from Harley Davidson or big brands, right? And to me, one of the things that's fascinating, and, and it's not just a marketing thing, it's an entire like company positioning thing, but there is so much money in being different instead of being better. And, and yet I, I think it's back to like, we have this human nature to group, group like together. Like it's funny. You said like, it is funny. We've all like opened up a bag of M&Ms and then put the colors together. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think that we, we observe what other folks are doing and we naturally sort the world relative to each other. And so competition and figuring out how to be better than the competition. I think it just must come to us so naturally. I'd love for you to weigh in on this, but I think that must come to us so naturally because the data would support if you can come up with something that's different and valuable, which is a key, key important right there, right? But essentially, like, being the only is, is potentially the most profitable position instead of being the best. And yet we're constantly 
talking to our partners and our customers and our employees about our competition and how can we beat the competition. And can, can you weigh in on all this? Absolutely. So we just hired our first business development executive, an amazing guy, 25 years in the industry, super duper guy. And we were talking over the weekend and he asked me, who's the competition? And I tried to explain my view about the competition, but unfortunately I wasn't good enough to explain it. So I asked him, he, he went to Cornell. That's where he did his MBA. And I asked him if who's Cornell's competition? And he said, I don't know. I said, is that the threat to the MBA program at Cornell? Is that the threat that they will be closed down because the competition will be better? No, they, they have other threats to the business, but it's not a competition. But we are used to the fact that the threat is a competition. And the reason I think we do that is because we always look around and we always try to compare ourselves to the guy next to us. And once we compare ourselves, and since as humans, we all the time are busy comparing what we can do, what they can do, that means that we go back to the grouping question, we group ourselves, and once we try to group ourselves, then we inherently find what's similar between us and our group, instead of trying to find what's different between us and our group. You know, this is this has been something I've I've really gone and sought out, you know, what are hopefully the best books on it and stuff. And, you know, like a lot of people know the like the blue ocean strategy or, you know, Peter Thiel zero to one or there's mm -hmm. a great book a couple of years ago called Play Bigger that I, I think added something to the conversation. Do you know that book, Play Bigger? No, I do not. What I think they did that was great is they they added this part to the conversation about how it's not enough to be the only, you actually need to evangelize that category. Like mm -hmm. if you want to be the category king, everybody else needs to understand it's a category, not just you, you know? So you kind of need to evangelize the business and evangelize the category as well. So you Makes can sense. have that number one spot. But as you've been talking, I keep thinking about one of my heroes is this guy, Richard Koch. He wrote the 80, 20 mm -hmm. principle book, but yes. An addition to that book is called The 80-20 Principle and 92 Other Powerful Laws of Nature, <laughs> which is a mouthful. But he, he really goes through this idea of like – and he uses – and I wish I could remember what bird species it is. But he uses like natural selection with animals and how like if there's two species that eat the same food and they want to nest in the same part of the tree and they're in the same geography, time shows that over, over time one of those will become extinct. And he talks about like, essentially like figure out a different part of the tree to nest in and something else to eat and you can coexist very well. And it's this point of like, try to move, you know, try to move away to different and valuable, but it was an interesting analogy he went through. And I, I totally agree. I think that first of all, some people try to be different for different sake. So one of my favorite books that he turned into a documentary is called The hat, it's a BBC documentary called Handbook to the Hipster. Okay. It's about how do we, how do you market to a group that its grouping or its characteristic is that it's different. If some, everybody's supposed to be different than anybody else, how do you sell to a group of individuals that they want to be different than anybody else in that group? So we have people and Yeah. Is it Robert Lanham? Does that sound right? The yeah. author? Yes. Yes, okay. yes, 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 yes. I'm putting in my wish list here. Yeah. And the question is, 
are you different because you want to be different? And, you know, I've got a 17-year-old son. He wants to be different sometimes because he is different. And that's fine. But is your difference a real difference? If you're a business, is your difference something that makes a change to your customers? That, but that's still not enough. Is that change important enough for the customer? So, you know, I know a very, very well-known investor, and he keeps on saying that he invests in companies that he understands the needs of the, the market. So if there's a need and he understands the need, that's what he's getting. If someone's a super cool app or super cool company, but he doesn't get the need, then it's not what he wants to be in. And, and, and that's what I love about many of the companies that was in the past. Yes, we sometimes were very similar to others. But we always went for, if you start from the customer and what they need, then go back to how can you fulfill that. And then if it's a good enough differentiation from others, then you've got, you may have something on your hands. Yeah. Shifting gears here a little, I, I'm interested, where did you grow up and what kind of advantages do you think that gave you for what you do now? <laughs> so I was born in Israel. But I grew up in the UK. At the age of seven, we were, we sent, we were sent over and we spent five and a half years in the UK. We, I then came back to Israel. I did uh, my mandatory army service and then uh, my legal career. And I started my career as a, as a lawyer, as a general counsel for a couple of private public companies. The last couple were traded on NASDAQ. And then about eight years ago, I moved with the family to the US. So I grew up in many different places in the world. And I love the fact that I had the ability to have literally friends from all over the place um, when I lived all over the place. And what I think that enabled me growing up is to understand that, you know, as cliche as it sounds, I was the odd one out. I had the language problems. I didn't have the right name. I didn't have, it was hard to pronounce, you name it. It's not easy growing up, but it shows that names don't matter and language doesn't matter. And what really matters is if you're a kid, does he run fast? Can he catch you when you're playing uh, ball? And that's the important part. And once you overcome all the superficial things, then you really do get a sense of we're all the same. We all just want to have fun if that fun is playing ball or solving science problems or solving business problems or going joining a book club. So I, that's that's me as growing up. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm, I'm interested in your – I have some theories, but I'm interested in your thought. I've had, I've had a number of, of Israeli – born entrepreneurs on the show. Most recently, a guy who was in Shaitat 13 in, in the IDF, uh -huh. like, you know, the Israeli version of Navy SEALs, I'm sure you know, but I'm interested in any thoughts you have of why, as a nation, there is such a proliferation of, of great entrepreneurs. So I think it comes out of two things. One, it comes out of a necessity that people grow up, you know, I see what my parents taught me, I see what my grandparents taught me, that You've got to do your best. You've got to think outside of the box. You've got to think like there's no box. Everything's great. You've got to do this. It's pushed to you. You've got to be creative. You've got to be creative because there's not enough resources. When I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, resources were missing. It doesn't matter which kind of resources. Food was great, but basic resources, uh, there's no raw materials. Everything has to be shipped in. So you need a lot of creativity. Secondly, and again, it's part of the IDF especially someone uh, who comes from from special forces background, uh, I, I come from that as well, that you are taught to believe in yourself and that hardship is in the head. I mean, nothing is 
not achievable if you put your mind to it. So you won't sleep a day and you won't sleep a night and you won't sleep a week and you'll push against the barrier. And you'll, the barrier isn't really there. You just and you won't accept no as an answer because you can prove that it's doable. So I think the the the, the mix between pushing through barriers and believing in the fact that no hardship is too hard and being creative re- resources, those two things enable Israel baby to be unproportionately abundant in the uh, high-tech industry and in the innovation industry. You know, I've never thought about the lack of resources in that equation, because when you think about like the maximum amount, you know, my hero, my mentor the last 19 years, he's, he's a business partner with me in this investment fund. We've started the charity together, all sorts of things. His name's John Verhessen. He, he just beat into me as like a 20 year old kid when he was first mentoring me, like, Money is made through duplication. If you can, mm-hmm. if you can duplicate profitability, that's where, that's where a lot of money is made. And this idea of being resource constrained has obvious negativities. But the point of like, if you can create a business in a resource constrained constrained area, the the potential for maximum duplication is incredible. You know, one of the most influential I don't know conversations that I've had on the show was years ago. This guy named Johnny Pastana, he, he built a company called Omniture that he sold to Adobe for like $1.8 billion with his partner. And he said it all started from they were, they were building websites and their buddy, their college buddy came in and said, well, I've got this other business and I make money while I sleep. <laughs> and he just <laughs> said like, I want to make money while I sleep. <laughs> and so that's what they did. Like he says it's like the overarching theme of how they built Omniture was, you know, we want to, we want to make money while, not just while we sleep, but while our team sleeps. And so everything was that you can sign up for the analytics program. The analytics program can run without us. I mean, there's obviously salespeople and accounting and there's a lot of work that's got to get done. But but over and over, they're consistently pushing for self-service, make money while we sleep, find clients while we sleep, you know, like as much of that as possible. And as a result, they have math, you know, because it was valuable enough, massive duplication to the point that Adobe buys them. And that was before unicorns were a little... A little, they were a little less common, you know, 15 years ago, right? Yeah. And I, I put this giant poster on my wall right in front, like on the wall behind my computer. It says, make money while you sleep. And I started it for like three years. Yeah. Anyways, weigh, weigh in on any of that. So I think in a lot of businesses, the I'm going to say something negative. Sure. Uh, one of my best, my best friends growing up, again, he was actually a teammate in the army and we, we stayed into a lot in touch later. I think one of the things that really ruined his life was the fact that people are making money out of money and you can get passive income out of nothing. And time and time again, he tried to establish a business, wasn't fit for him, wasn't right for him. It was, let's make a quick buck and mm. make my money work while I'm asleep. So m- passive income is great. But there aren't a lot of passive businesses. If you build your business, which is efficient, and that's slightly bit different, meaning, yes, you can get the leads from the web. You can get a lot of automation. You don't have to reinvent the wheel for every deal. You don't have to, you know, your deal acquisition is low. So no lawyers involved. Things are simple, streamlined. You onboard customers really fast. You don't need 10 people to onboard a customer. You don't need customers on the line for 30 minutes to get customer service. They could handle it on their own. If you get that efficiency in place, then you can lower your cost and you literally are making quote-unquote money while you sleep. That's great. But people who assume that you can 
really make passive income without there's tons of great deals out there we just need to find i think that it has ruined more pe- more people's lives than people dare to admit um, yeah because it's almost like um the same guy my partner john had me read this book called the price and the prize and okay. and it's this idea of how often shortcutting the price ends up shortcutting the prize and it's like, obviously, none of us want to do unnecessary work. And I'm a big fan of the Smart Cuts book by Shane Snow of like skipping unnecessary uh-huh. work. But when you skip yes. necessary work, you you don't, as it has, a, it has an effect, right? Absolutely. And, and I'll give you my example. My experience with that was I once managed a mobile satellite service company. That's a company that provides satellite service to the maritime industry and the avid industry and it's a very closed market and there's a price book and there's a price list and you buy it from one source and it's a very limited but you can get your profit on really giving value to the in our case to the merchant fleets by giving them all the value as they need by giving them better support by giving them better voice service by giving them better uh this or better that or many many different but that's very hard it's very hard to sell to someone by saying, oh, I can give you a much better support and give you a much better SLA. I can give you a much – it's a lot easier by saying, oh, I'll give you 10% discount. Mm. It's a lot easier. And what we found out that every time that we were able to negotiate a discount for one deal or a permanent discount on a certain product, within a few short months, all that extra margin would go away because the sales guys would literally reduce the price as they went around. So – I completely agree with you that you've got to do it properly. Yes, it's harder to convince people of the value versus the price. But if you do that and they you convince them that you give them a better service and they sign up for the service and they stay, they will be a lot happier. There will be, be a lot stickier relationship and people will stay. So it may be slightly bit harder to, to get the initial interaction. But once you've done it and you continue doing a good job, they will stay. You don't have to resell it. If you do it on price, then you have to resell every renewal. But there again, that goes back to being different and have, have something that's not so easy to get, just have somebody come undercut you with price. Right. You know, I think my next question is we we've had so many entrepreneurs on the show from the special forces and intelligence community as well. So, you know, us army Rangers and Delta force and seal team six and, British SAS, and are you allowed to say what part of Special Forces you were a part of? I was part of the Israeli Paratrooper Special Forces. Okay, and and I'm not as familiar with their background. What are they known for mm-hmm. within IDF? Like, what's what's something characteristic of them? So one is like anyone else, super tough, getting the job done, going into places that are slightly bit more dangerous than expected, yeah, and making sure that you get out of it. At the end. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I guess maybe another example is, you know, in, in the U.S., right? The the SEAL teams are obviously known for everything water, but but in addition to the stuff on the surface, they're known for just like the brotherhood. Like, like they're swim buddies. Exactly. You know, like mm-hmm. all of my special forces friends, they love their buddies. They call them brothers. They're so tight. But there's something about those SEALs where they're like the swim buddies alone in the dark in the middle of the ocean. There's... So I, at least I feel like there's a little something extra there, you know, where like 
the the Delta Force guys, you know, they they pull from all these different branches, and they're they're known as the, the like the quiet professional, like the humble, mm-hmm. the the you know they're very known. They've got that reputation. So like versus like for instance, you know, the Israeli version of Navy SEALs, you know, the the mm-hmm. Chetet Thirteen guys. What are the paratroopers mm-hmm. known in contrast to them? For instance. So first of all, okay, got it. So one, we are not. We went again. I say we, but uh, it's been twenty years since I left the service. So one. It's the camaraderie. We, you've got to go through a lot of stages to get to these, these special units. So you've got to go. And, and it does give you a sense of belonging. You know, when we started a group of 200, 250, and then the day you look back and you see, oh, we're only 15 left. Then you say, okay, um, these are the best of the best in, that have applied to what I want to do. And these are cool guys. But it doesn't get to our head since we don't have the marketing that the big guys do. <laughs> uh, we just need to get the, the job done. But I think when you check all of it, and I do have friends from the uh, SAS, I do have friends from Delta Force, I do have friends from other uh, special units around the world, then when you check it out, at the end of the day, I think it's pretty simple to map everybody out. They really believe in one plus one equals at least three or four. That's why they work so close with teamwork is so important. They really believe in themselves because they've gone through this training that shows that everything that they think they can do, they can do actually a lot more. And they also learn that if you work long enough with other people and you get to know what they're good at and what they're bad at, then you can literally overcome any weakness as a team. And it is working together and some people are tired sometimes, some people are aggravated, some people are not a good shot and others are really good at blowing things up. So make sure that everybody knows what he's doing but can cover for the people that are a little bit weaker. But when you check it all, I think that a lot of these, you know, Delta Force and Israeli Special Force the same. It's a lot about internal marketing. And yes, there's a lot of competition of how do you get the best 18 or 21-year-old into your unit? And there's a huge race of who do you get to? You've got to get to a lot of marketing, like anything else in the world, but it's a business. If you've got a thousand amazing enlistments, how do you make sure that you get the best hundred applying for Delta Force versus to the Navy SEALs? And the answer is marketing. But I think that anybody that has been down that route and has finished it comes out a different person. Doesn't mean that he's a better person. I mean, there are tons of people I know that went into quote unquote law enforcement, FBI and, and you know, New York City police and amazing and they get the same tools. It's all about how do you get your tools to enable you to move forward. So I think that's how I look at this. But for me, it was literally to find out that I'm a lot, I'm capable a lot more than I think. And to have friends that here we are 25 years later are still my best friends. So I know we're kind of running out of time. Tell us one principle from your time with paratroopers that is helping you invent laser beams in space. (laughs) Never accept no as an answer. Hmm. Talk to me about that. Because I've had multiple people come to me for certain ideas and say, we can't do it. I mean, going from, you know, having a laser that spends X amounts of power, going down to a tenth X, and now you want to go to a thousand X in three years? Forget it. Not going to work. And I say, you're absolutely right. What can you do? He'll go anything about it. Uh, How about half of that? I said, nah, you can do better. Go work on it. <laughs> and then they, funnily enough, time and time again, 
They come back and say, you know what? I didn't think it, but after spending a night here in the lab and doing this and doing it, you know what? Maybe we can do it. And sometimes it's three years and sometimes it's five years and sometimes it's three months. And sometimes it's not really doable. Sometimes physics is stronger than all of us. But the ability to say to not to accept no as an answer and to believe in yourself will work harder, will do harder, will get it done the best we can. I love it. Well, listen, besides people going to lightloop.com, which is L-Y-T-E, people, lightloop.com, should they connect with you on LinkedIn or, or what's any, anywhere else you'd send people? I would love for people to connect to me on LinkedIn. I will also say one last thing about myself. I love speak, to speak with people. So anybody wants to reach out about why we're crazy, that will be awesome. I'd love to hear what we're doing wrong because we learn about what we're doing wrong from people better than people saying, oh, you're amazing. I'd love to hear what we're doing wrong. Connect on, on, on through our website. There's an email that we can connect to directly to us and it will get direct to me if needed. LinkedIn is great. And check us out. We really are just trying to change the way that data is traveled. We're not trying to sell anything. We're not trying to do anything other than explain the fact that we can do much better as humanity. We can use more of humanity. We can um, store data better, store data better more securely and have fun doing it. I love it. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Bye now. Thank you all.